0: Good evening. This is the final week of Rare Book School 2003. By uh, the end of the week, as I hope, 310 people will have survived one class or another in the school. Our lecturer this evening is Leon Jackson, assistant professor in the English Department at the University of South Carolina. He is Book Arts Press lecturer number 469. And he speaks tonight on the printer as writer from Franklin to Whitman. Leon Jackson. Thank you very much. When I was 11 years old, I made my first and to date only book. I hand-typed it on a manual Smith Corona typewriter. I illustrated it with felt-tip pens, And bibliographically, it could be described as a folio bound with staples and Scotch tape. The title, if I remember correctly, was How to Be a Prankster Practical Hints for Practical Jokers. (laughs) Much information on the disposition and placement of whoopee cushions, as I recall. My mother, when she found it, was so appalled that I think to discourage me, she sent it to the local newspaper. Hoping that they would trash it, but instead they invited me to uh, visit their offices and their printing shop and be interviewed, uh, which was kind of like uh, pouring gasoline on flames. Okay, okay. But the printing uh, press, uh, the workman gave me a little piece of linotype that had my name on it. And when they asked me, "Son, what do you want to be when you grow up?" I naturally said, "I want to be a printer." Lamentably, uh, I failed, and I failed horribly by becoming an academic instead. So, my talk this evening is uh, uh, an act of uh, forgiveness, and it goes like this In 1735, readers of the Titan Leeds Almanac were treated to a satirical verse survey of competing American almanacs and their authors that used doggerel couplets to assess each diarist's ability to compose, calculate, and rhyme. Prominent among the poet's targets was the up-and-coming printer, Benjamin Franklin, who since 1732 had been publishing and writing his Poor Richard's Almanac to great acclaim. The charge leveled against Franklin tells us much about the prescriptive relationship between authors and printers in the 18th century. But who could be so mad to think, said the poet, but who could be so mad to think a printer should appear in print, and so much sense and judgment lack to write himself an almanac, and should attempt to be, Jove bless us, a mongrel son of bald Parnassus. For a printer to appear in print was nothing less than madness, apparently, for in so doing, a printer was mongrelizing a putatively pure breed of authors." In authoring his own almanac, that is, Franklin the artisan printer was overstepping his social role, compromising both himself and his cultural betters. Almost exactly a century later, another verse satirist, one William Joseph Snelling, levelled an almost identical charge against the artisan authors of his own day, complaining that printers and cobblers, among others, were still gaining unjustified attention for their literary efforts. Says Snelling... Does some smart cobbler to the winds disperse his ends and like his shoe-soles creak in verse? Some printer's devil throw away his stick, bit by poetic maggot to the quick. Forthwith Sir oracle is seen to squint at the poor public through some paltry print. And Snelling went on to offer the following witty advice. Ye master tradesmen, to my words give heed. I'll give ye counsel that ye greatly need. Does any Prentice take it in his head to pen a stanza? See him blistered, bled. If that won't answer, straight his wages pay and give him leave or else he'll run away. Or to your tender feelings, give the reins. Do him an arms deed and beat out his brains. You Prentice boys who would one day be men, stick to your handiworks, eschew the pen. Stick to your handiworks, eschew the pen. In the 1830s as in the 1730s, the message was the same. A printer who presumed to write was overreaching his social and intellectual station, he had no legitimate place in the field of cultural production. The impropriety of a printer writing rather than merely setting type for a text was quite specifically predicated on an 18th century conservative taxonomy of occupations that distinguished clearly and hierarchically between manual and non-manual forms of labor. Those in the learned professions, it was said, worked with their brains and hence were authorized to write as a natural, natural extension of their occupational activities. But printers... The products of their craft notwithstanding worked primarily with their hands and with us held to lack the sense and judgment requisite to become authors. Many shared the static Pauline notion of calling articulated by William Henry Drayton in 1771 uh, in which he placed mechanics very low in the scheme of things. The industrious mechanic, he said, was useful in a necessary part of society, but he belonged on the lower rungs. When a man acts in his own sphere, Drayton explained, thinking perhaps of an upstart like Franklin, he is useful in the community, but when he steps out of it and sets himself up for a statesman, believe me, he is in a fair way to expose himself to ridicule. Snobbery directed against mechanics in general and printers in particular, was rife in the colonial and early national periods. Printer Thurlow Weed recalled how sharply he was rebuked in 1818 by two members of the New York State Legislature for his impudence in attempting to secure a charter for the New York Typographical Society, an organization the legislature, legislators reminded him sneeringly of journeyman mechanics. Printers in other spheres of life were equally unwelcome. Society bell, Harriet, Otis expressed acute embarrassment on being introduced to two printers at a Washington ball in 1812. It was a most remarkable circumstance, she confided in her diary later, and left her sense of decency more than a little hurt. Even wealthy printers were by many considered to be socially inferior, The same year that Henry Drayton sought to put artisans in their place, a Harvard student was able to sneer at master printer Richard Draper, and I'm quoting here, as a mere mechanic in the art of setting and blacking types. It's kind of a nice way of summarizing everything that RBS does. Uh, And below the notice of a freshman... Printers themselves sometimes accepted these uh, derogatory designations. Successful colonial printer James Parker offered perhaps the most offensive attack on the trade, blending imputations of economic exploitation and racial outcasting when he complained in 1759 that printers were, and I'm quoting here, obliged to work like Negroes and in general are esteemed but little better. In 1781, likewise, a doubting printer privately lamented his position as a member of one of the mechanical tribes. It's hard to miss the vocational self-loathing in such complaints. Yet, as historian uh, Stuart Blumen has pointed out, the meanings attached to the word mechanic were vigorously contested in the 18th century. And while even master printers remained associated with the difficult and often dirty job of setting and blacking types, some of them parlayed respectable incomes into respectable status. When not being sneered at by Harvard freshmen, for instance, Richard Draper enjoyed the prestige of being printer to the governor of Massachusetts, while by the 1780s his competitor, Isaiah Thomas and others, were being referred to as Esquires nor did printers make their claims to elevated status on the grounds of income alone. Even as some articulated the contempt for printers as members of the meanest mechanical tribes, printers themselves, especially with the onset of the American Revolution, drew on and developed a counter-image that presented the compositor and pressman as central arbiters of culture and politics. Though I'm not skilled in Greek and Latin law, as one printer put it, nor ancient Hebrew as in days of yore with due submission I inform my betters that I can boast I am a man of letters the printer is man of letters it's an intriguing idea if for no other reason than that it undermines the traditional and still well entrenched notion of an author printer distinction, even an author printer hostility such as we see in the lecture poster that Terry Bellinger so kindly put together for this talk Interestingly, even some non-printing authors of the 19th century acknowledged the special intellectual position of printers in the Republic of Letters, claiming that as a result of their physical labors in setting type, they were more precise thinkers and writers than their non-artisanal kin. If there were an apprenticeship to the trade of authorship, said Nathaniel P. Willis in the 1830s, it would be essential that a young author should pass a year as a compositor in a printing office. We venture to say that it would alter the entire character of American literature if our American authors were compelled before receiving the copyright to have given one year's labor at the compositor's case. And this precisely is the subject of my talk this evening. Between the 1780s and the 1840s, I shall argue, an apprenticeship in the printing trade was seen by many, especially the economically marginalized, as the only legitimate and viable route to paid authorship, specifically through elevation to master artisan status and edit- editorship of a newspaper or periodical, although its viability in reality became increasingly tenuous from the early 19th century onward, as we shall see later. Specifically, I'm going to argue that the impoverished boys who entered the printing trade gained access to four forms of cultural and social capital that made authorship a real possibility for them. Firstly, printers enjoyed a remarkably high level of literacy, obviously. Secondly, they partook of a vibrant work or craft culture with an inherently narrative structure and a penchant for wordplay, Thirdly, they entertained an occupational culture or self-image that stressed the vital social and intellectual contributions of the press and which legitimized their own entry into the public sphere. And lastly, they were by the very nature of their labors deeply immersed in a world of words and tended to be exposed to literary productions and literary producers to a greater degree than those in other trades." This is not to say, of course, that artisans and other trades did not become authors, too. They did. One thinks here, for example, of the apprentice cobbler, John Greenleaf Whittier, although, of course, we don't think of him that way, the master blacksmith, Elihu Barrett, to say nothing of ship's corker, Frederick Douglass, Rather, my argument will be that no trade other than printing drew together all four forms of cultural capital which I see as central to artisan authorship, nor wove them so effectively and centrally into the trade's occupational narrative. In purely prescriptive terms, that narrative forward, uh, excuse me, followed a very clear tripartite structure that began with apprenticeship, moved through journeymanhood, and ended with the achievement of master status. At an early age, that is, a boy was apprenticed to a master printer to learn the art and mystery of the trade. He lived and worked with his master and was occupied around the shop in a variety of menial tasks. As time went on, he learned how to set type and when sufficiently hardy to undertake press work. At the end of his apprenticeship, he became a journeyman, working for wages but owning only his ability to labor. After some years of money, at least in theory, or alternatively by establishing a line of credit, the journeyman purchased a printing press of his own. At this point, he assumed the status of a master artisan and was able to run his shop by taking on apprentices of his own, whom he did not pay, but whom he trained. He typically edited a newspaper or periodical to which he contributed a great deal of original material. He was a man of letters. This narrative was modeled most influentially and attractively, of course, by Ben Franklin, whose autobiography was published in 1791, but whose life story had been known well before this date. That many young men became printers because they harbored literary ambitions in the Franklinian mold is beyond argument. Joseph T. Buckingham, who served apprenticeships in Walpole, New Hampshire, and Greenfield, Massachusetts in the 1790s, described an editorial position as, and I'm quoting here, the consummation of his ambition, and recalled how his fellow apprentices showed similarly literary inclinations. John Pickens, he said, was a sagacious critic. Leonard Whittington's taste was decidedly literary. And Henry Small cared less about learning the art of printing as a means of living than he did to gratify his literary ambition. And we need to remember that these these people he's describing were aged 13 and 14. (laughs) Makes you wonder, doesn't it? The harshest evaluation Buckingham was able to muster in uh, commenting on his fellow apprentices was that Hosea Sprague's literary accomplishments were less than one would expect from a good compositor. Yet even Sprague subsequently ventured to edit a magazine. Let's consider one of these Franklinian wannabes a little more closely to see how the aspirations and ideals of artisans played out in practice. Samuel Woodworth, my chosen subject, was born in rural Massachusetts in 1784. A feeble, bookish child, he wasn't able to contribute much to the economy of his parents' modest family farm. Because he was both literate and highly precocious, however, he received a rudimentary education in Latin and English, and under the patronage of a local minister, was prepared for entrance to Yale. When his patron was unable to raise funds to send him to New Haven, however, Woodworth's parents proposed apprenticing him to a baker, but because he had just read an account of Franklin's life, he begged to become a printer instead. And so at the relatively advanced age of 17, he was apprenticed to Benjamin Russell, the owner editor and printer of Boston's leading federalist newspaper, the Columbian Sentinel, where Buckingham himself by this time was working. Although Woodworth's articles of indenture have not survived, the terms of his apprenticeship can be inferred. He was to live with Russell and his family until he was 21. He would receive no salary, but in exchange for his work, he would be housed, clothed, fed, and initiated into the practical knowledge of the trade. He would, in the language of arts and indentures, learn the art and mystery of printing. At the time Woodworth began his apprenticeship, the Sentinel was one of the most successful papers in Massachusetts, and its office was large, comprising several journeymen, a foreman, and five other apprentices. Life for the newest apprentice, or devil, was hard and unglamorous. Years later, Woodworth recalled that his job consisted of, and I quote here, picking up types which had fallen on the floor, sprinkling and sweeping out the office, including the spiral staircase. And must mention that the staircase was spiral, hard to sweep carding wool for a new pair of balls, which I will explain later on, treading the pelts, which were to cover them, bringing water for wetting paper, and making paste for packing up the mails. And I need to explain here what treading the pelts was. Before the days of galvanized rubber ink rollers, ink was applied to type uh, um, with uh, uh, swatches of, of, of sheep's wool covered in sheepskin Uh, that was made soft by soaking for many weeks in urine, uh, and it was the devil's responsibility each night to trample barefoot these pea-soaked sheepskins, uh, wring them out, and uh, then re-soak them. Not exactly literary glamour. Every Saturday, Woodworth trudged the streets of. But I'm just thinking that maybe that's what Willis said about sort of changing the entire tenor of American literature. But <laughs> I digress. Every Saturday, Woodworth trudged the streets of Boston, delivering the paper to subscribers and packaged several thousand more for mailing to out-of-town subscribers and newspapers with whom the Sentinel exchanged publications. Eventually, after 15 months a new apprentice arrived at the sentinel office, Woodworth ended what he called his diabolic duties and began to learn how to set type for the paper. Being a compositor had its perks, for while the work could be immensely straining on the eyes and patience, it took less time and effort than being the office devil. Also, you could wear your shoes. And Woodworth was allowed to do small printing jobs for his own benefit when the presses were not otherwise occupied. After mastering the art of composition, Woodworth eventually graduated to press work, which was the most physically demanding task in the office. Two men worked the press, a beater who inked the type by striking it with the aforementioned balls, and a puller who operated the lever on the press, thereby making an impression on the sheets. Pulling the press was an exhausting task, and left some pressmen, so we're told, with one massively overdeveloped arm, caved-in chest, and characteristically rolling gait. Beating, according to Wordsworth, was also a disagreeable and laborious operation. Pressmen often wore hats made of old newspaper, and if you take a look at the poster for the conference, actually, you can see the printer is wearing this little square hat, which would have been made uh, of uh, cast-off sheets, uh, um, to protect their hair and faces from flying ink, but their faces were nonetheless spattered with numerous spots. Together with proofreading, distribution and folding, these tasks in essence constituted the art and mystery of printing. But Woodworth learned not only the physical skills of a printer, he also mastered a repertoire of intellectual abilities that I have already outlined above. Basic literacy, cultural literacy, or if you will, literateness, work culture and occupational culture, because time and food, or of the essence, I want to skip over basic literacy and move right on to the more specialized cultures, starting with work culture. Again, I'll use Woodworth as my example. When he began his apprenticeship in 1801, Woodworth knew next to nothing about the language of printers or the culture from which it emerged. The office clerk, who met him at the door of the shop, spoke to him in what he called an unintelligible jargon, and a humorous exchange followed, in which Woodworth, upon being told that he was the new devil, believed that he had been offered a blasphemous insult and offered to fight his work colleague. He quickly learned that the devil was the trade's name for the newest apprentice. The jargon with which Woodworth was confronted formed a key component in what scholars call the printing trade's work culture, a combination of rituals, discursive practices, and ideological convictions. Printers, for example, employed an extensive vocabulary of technical terms which Woodworth was to learn. Printing presses made impressions... Initial impressions, which were checked for error, were called proof. When type was scattered inadvertently, it was said to be pied or in pie, something that rarely happened if it was locked up in a chase. This also helped ensure that the text was, well, justified or aligned. When each letter was returned to its container or case, this is kind of like see dick print print dick print <laughs> um, it was said to be distributed. Fonts had strikingly polysemic names like Pearl, Primer, and Bourgeois. A standard amount of a specific type of character within a font was called a sort of, was called a sort, excuse me, leading to the phrase to be out of sorts. There was also an extensive vocabulary to describe the nature of printer's labor and its organization. The youngest and most menial apprentice we know was called the devil. The apprentice who took the sheets from the press was called the fly. Journeymen were called jurors, or typos. Easy work was called fat, spelt with a very hip PH, while more time-consuming jobs were lean. The trade language was, one new apprentice confessed to his diary, inexplicable. And the names of the different utensils, the most singular I ever heard of, they sound strangely in my ears. Learning this language was not merely a question of imitation, however, but a process of initiation. Printer's specialized language both provided craft cohesiveness and also a sense of exclusivity which was jealously guarded. If you could talk the talk, the chances were you could walk the walk and pull the press too. While work culture tended to emerge out of and refer back to the labor practices of the printing shop, Occupational culture referred to how printers held that they and their craft should be understood by everybody else. The printer's self-image may be summed up quite simply as one of immense pride. Bringing together Enlightenment epistemology with its emphasis on rational and empirical analysis and Republican notions of power and its corruptions, printers believed that the products of the press, and by extension the men who operated it, always men, of course, were able to expose falsehood, deceit, and superstition, which were the tools by which tyrants and demagogues held sway over the people. Such sentiments were well expressed by printer Ebenezer Mapp in an oration of 1813. When we contemplate my indulgent friends, when we contemplate the rise and progress of the art of printing, we find that it has everywhere assisted religion, civilization and science and being promotive, nay, essential to the existence of civil liberty, to which I can only say amen. Printing was, as printers, never tired of reminding people, the art preservative of all arts. Printers also advanced a craft hagiography which could be shared by the public at large in order to buttress its authority. They celebrated Johann Faust, who many believed had invented printing, Gutenberg, and above all, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin the printer, the mere mechanic, who had had the audacity not only to appear in print, but to succeed at every venture to which he turned his hand. He was without a doubt the American printer's secular saint, and printers never tired of singing his praises. He was, according to printer Thomas Ringwood, and I quote, the father of science, the patronizer of arts, the encourager of literature. He was the poor's universal friend, and an useful companion to all who had the advantage of his acquaintance. While some members of the social elite sneered at the loneliness of mechanics then, printers responded by vaunting the example of Franklin as evidence of the trade's potential, and by suggesting that more than simply reproducing and disseminating the words of others, printers might become important men of letters themselves, both in the sphere of newspaper editorship and more editor, in the sphere, uh, excuse me, in the realm of polite letters, but printers were not wholly insular in their cultural concerns. Far from it. In fact, they were among the most learned and cosmopolitan Americans, and certainly the most learned and cosmopolitan artisans of the colonial and early national eras. As historian Mark Lauser has elegantly put it, printers set character by character, stacked line by line printed page by page and bound volume by volume the greatest works of their age. Is it any wonder that they also mastered them? They were abreast of the news because they printed that too, and since they had access after hours to all the books for sale in their master's stores, they could be astonishingly well read. Samuel Woodworth, for instance, not only read voraciously in the newspapers that came through his printing shop, but also began a combination commonplace book and scrapbook in which she placed, quote, all the pretty poetry and anecdotes I run across. In an age in which, as Kathy Davidson has reminded us, it cost a common day-laborer two days' salary in order to buy a novel by someone like Charles Brockton Brown money that was equivalent to a bushel of potatoes, however much, I'm assuming that's a lot, a bushel of potatoes and half a bushel of corn. I haven't bought anything in bushels for a while, so you have to excuse me. Printers' apprentices had their food and clothing paid for and had access to pretty much all the literature they could read on the house. The world that Samuel Woodworth entered as a young apprentice then was rich with opportunity. Through his years as an apprentice and journeyman, Woodworth had honed his literacy and immersed himself in literary works at very little cost, to the point where he was a concise thinker, a competent reader, and an eloquent writer. He had become initiated into the work culture of the printing office, which provided him with a rich trade language and a vital set of traditions. He had absorbed, too, the printer's occupational ideology, according to which he and his fellow craftsmen were the producers of true wealth, and stewards of the nation's civil and sacred truths, and which promoted his sense of himself as editorial material. And lastly, he had come to see himself as a character in an occupational narrative that told him that he would eventually himself be rewarded for his efforts with the opportunity to own a newspaper of his own, and thus have a medium through which to publish his own editorial and literary writings. By the time he had completed his apprenticeship, Woodworth felt entitled to write, quite literally authorised, and write he did. So what sort of things did printers write? As the time I've taken in outlining the various cultures absorbed by printers should suggest, what they produced grew very directly out of what they knew. From their work culture and basic working conditions, printers developed a fascination with words themselves and were typically devoted and awesome punsters. This love of language not only manifested itself in print shop banter and repartee, although it certainly did, but somewhat more formally in the giving of toasts. Toasting was widespread in, uh, um, excuse me, I've lost my spot here. Toasting was widespread in both English and American tavern cultures, but as Peter Thompson has observed, it was socially marked. Where commoners were simply inclined to drink one's health, and I have to do this dry because we're not allowed to bring fluids uh, into the rotunda, but where commoners were simply inclined to drink one's health with a, cheers mate, or all right, those who aspire to gentility made toasting an occasion to show verbal skill and eloquence, wit, whimsy, and improvised puns. Although printers lack the gentility of these genteel boozers, they share the desire to show off their linguistic aptitude along with their drinking prowess. A few examples will suffice dry again, I regret to say. So The members of the Franklin Typographical Society, may those who are hourly giving the world tokens of good works and daily adding proofs of correct manner be justified by the great composer at that period when he shall make up his last form of jewels. Cheers. And, and everyone's made to sort of be whistling through their, through their fingers all of the pounds. The union, a form well locked up. May it never be thrown into pie. And one more. The executive of the United States, may those characters that compose it faithfully fulfill their offices, and our constitution stand proof against the squabbles of party, to which I say once more and and forever after a hearty amen. The cup goes away now. That's the first of two political elements to the talk, (laughs) Brief ones. I've had to emphasize the words containing the puns, but when such toasts were published, as they often were, Compositors, almost without exception, italicized the trade puns to illustrate, as one editor put it, that these words were technical. Joel manzel one of the great printers of his time, after attending a rather rowdy printer's gathering, one in which fluids were not only allowed but encouraged, lamented that such toasts were printed at all. They were, he said in his diary, proper enough among the craft Will probably appear obscene among the community who are unacquainted with the technical meaning. Munsell probably had in mind a toast of printer named Wallace uh, the evening he attended to the fair sex. Again, to the fair sex may each soon be locked up in the chase of marriage, worked off, pressed, and run through many editions. <clears throat> yeah. Although printers actually had racier toasts than this, based on bastards. Uh, uh, printing-sized beds of printing presses and what happened between sheets of paper. And uh, Woodworth himself uh, published a rather off-colour squib in lieu of a marriage announcement, which is probably a very bad sign to his impending wife. Honey, look what I put in the newspaper for you. It's uh, a little too obscene for the rotunda, I regret to say. Printer's toasts, in other words, were deliberately polysemic, with one meaning for printers and another for the punters. To get a printer's toast was to affirm one's sense of belonging to an exclusive fraternity. In 1835, English printer George Brimmer published a printer's mock-verse epic, The Composing Room, which described every aspect of the printer's life and work culture, from apprenticeship to masterhood, in brisk, pun-filled couplets. While no American printer undertook so comprehensive a poetic work, they produced dozens perhaps hundreds of shorter pun-based poems on the printer's life. The following from 1801, in the memory of Benjamin Franklin, is typical and it runs like this. His heap is off, his beds are dry, his press is stripped, his form is pie, his case within the rack is placed, his galleys is warped, his frames unbraced. Yet shall the work he left behind impress his worth on every mind, while each his honored image bears, graved on the badge his bosom wears, shall cry and press it to his heart, behold the patron of our art. This poem, and there were literally hundreds of poems like this, uh, was in fact a hybrid, drawing not only from the work culture with its technical terms and puns, but also from the occupational culture with its celebration of the press and its operators as champions of freedom, virtue, and patriotism. And where work culture tended to generate playful, pun-filled poems, occupational culture encouraged printers towards the technological sublime, quasi-Miltonic epics, such as the following written by Woodworth. And I want you in advance, this is hideous, so brace yourself. Hail to the art, whose effulgence has brightened the darkness that shrouded for ages the world... Long shall fair freedom... This is killing me. Long shall fair freedom by printing enlightened wave the bright banner her sons have unfold. Dark was the human mind and hoodwinked reason blind while tyranny gave his war steeds the rein. Then Faust arose to bless and gave to man the press free as billows from Neptune's domain. Okay, so it's not one of his more uh, cool poems but it gives you a sense of uh, how these things went. Printer's occupational culture also gave rise to one of the most entertaining and unique genres, the newspaper carrier's New Year's address. A single-sheet poem often written by one of the apprentices in the printing establishment, the carrier's New Year's address summed up the year's news in brisk and witty couplets, offered a hymn on the centrality of newspaper apprentices to the very stability of the civilized world, and blending cajolery and veiled threat requested a tip. Tip me, these poems said, because I am the living embodiment of Mercury, messenger of the gods, the foundation of commerce, And uh, virtue, also, if you do not, I will throw your newspaper in the water and teepee your house on Halloween... A recent bibliography uh, published by the American Antiquarian Society lists almost 1,000 addresses uh, that these uh, uh, these New Year's addresses published prior to 1820, of which I've now read about 400, and they are mostly outstanding. Alas, we don't have time to consider them now, except to note that, predictably enough, our friend Woodworth penned his share of this appealing genre. Of course... Printers were immersed more generally in the literary culture of their age, and many printers produced purely literary works that had no trace of either work or occupational culture in their lines. Woodworth, for example, was best known for his occupational or trade verses, excuse me, Woodworth, for example, was best known not for his occupational or trade verses, but for his nostalgic hymn to his childhood farm. The Old Oaken Bucket, which until the early 20th century was still a set piece for student recitations. It runs in part as follows. Better than the uh, O Thou printing stuff I just read you. How dear to this heart are the scenes of my childhood when fond recollection presents them to view the orchard, the meadow, the deep tangled wildwood and every loved spot which my infancy knew the wide-spreading pond and the mill that stood by it, the bridge and the rock where the cataract fell, the cot of my father, the dairy house nigh it, and in the rude bucket which hung in the well, the old oaken bucket, the iron-bound bucket, the moss-covered bucket which hung in the well. It's good stuff. Woodworth's literary output from the time he began his apprenticeship through the 1840s was simply immense and immensely diverse. He wrote novels, poems, plays, essays, short stories, editorials, carrier's addresses, speeches, orations, philosophical disquisitions, histories, and advertising copy, including a a, a verse book advertising hair tonic, which I read... uh, in response to this prodigious output, William Joseph Snelling, the satirist with whom I began my talk, quipped Chop wood, O Woodworth, make the anvil ring, dig mud, pick oakum, anything but sing. <laughs> but part of what facilitated Woodworth's creative urge and helped him find channels for his creativity. What empowered him to sing, as Snelling sneeringly put it, was precisely the fact that he was a printer and not a woodman, blacksmith, oyster-gatherer or prison inmate. As a printer, Woodworth possessed an unerring sense that he was a character in an occupational narrative that would end up with him being an economically secure, socially respectable master printer, newspaper editor and man of letters. And things seemed to go relatively well for Woodworth in that respect. In 1806, he turned 21, and his apprenticeship expired. He had mastered the art of printing and was now free to work for any printer for a salary. He was, in other words, a journeyman, so-called because most men who completed their apprenticeship tended to journey from job to job in search of the highest wages they could muster. According to Woodworth's contemporary, Buckingham, quote, every journeyman expected to have a printing office and a paper of his own. And after nine months, Woodworth took the decisive step to master artisan status. He purchased printing press and types on credit, and on the 5th of March 1808, he published the first issue of his own newspaper, the fortnightly Bell Letters Repository. After seven years of hard work, Woodworth had now successfully negotiated the stages of the printer's tra- vocational trajectory. He was a master printer and man of letters, just as his vocation's prescriptive narrative stipulated. Once he had fully established himself, he would be able to hire journeymen and take on apprentices of his own, just as he had served an apprentice as an apprentice and a journeyman for Russell, and he could focus exclusively on writing. Though this initial project failed, Woolworth persisted, owning, in roughly chronological order, the Bell Letters Repository, the Halcyon Luminary, the War, published in the 1812 War, the Republican Chronicle, the Ladies Literary Cabinet, the Literary Casket and Pocket Magazine, small, the New Jerusalem Missionary and Intellectual Magazine, the Parthenon, or Literary and Scientific Magazine, and the New York Mirror, this last being one of the best established and most respected literary papers of the period. Woodworth had arrived... The late 18th and early 19th centuries saw, in fact, the arrival of innumerable printers, men who owned not only the intellectual, but also the material means of production through which to disseminate their ideas. Men who did not do battle with authors, but who were authors themselves, wielders of pen and composing stick, inkwell and inking ball. A brief list would include Woodworth, his apprentice, and subsequently his own boss, George Pope Morris, famous for Woodman Spare That Tree, James O. Rockwell, William Lloyd Garrison, Selick Osborne, Rufus Griswold, Walt Whitman, Theophilus Eaton, a still wholly obscure poet, uh, no one to my knowledge has written about him, but whose versatile and urban preoccupations clearly anticipate Whitman's, and more. Awaiting execution for murder in Alabama, in 1835, a journeyman printer, Charles Boyington, penned his last confession, an awful life story, and he also found time to append most of his fugitive verse to the narrative before sending it off to the press and himself to eternity. This was his occupational ideology speaking. I've hit rock bottom, but if you weren't going to hang me, I could be a really cool poet. There were enough printing poets by 1850, in fact, to sustain an entire anthology, Voices from the Press, edited by Whitman's former boss, James J. Brenton. That most of these writers remain obscure to us can be explained at least in part by reference to their relatively poor access to cultural capital. Um, The most important reason for our lack of interest in them today, however, is an immense rupture that took place in the early 19th century book trade that more or less whacked out this path to authorship and rendered those riders invisible. The experience of Robert Stevenson Coffin, a.k.a. the Boston Bard, uh, neatly illustrates this pivotal disruption. Born in 1797 to a Harvard-trained minister, Coffin was early apprenticed to Ephraim Allen, a master printer in in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Like many apprentices, Coffin's experience in the print shop led him to literary aspirations, and he began to write and print his own poems at night after the shop had closed. As his apprenticeship proceeded, he graduated to publishing occasional poems in the local newspapers, although like his hero Ben Franklin, he submitted them anonymously for fear that they would be otherwise rejected. Upon completing his apprenticeship, he joined the ranks of journeyman printers and moved from job to job in New York, New England, and the Middle Atlantic. And he continued to publish poems in newspapers, hoping to save his journeyman's wages until he could purchase a press, edit a paper, and establish himself as a master, printer, and man of letters himself. His 1817 poem, entitled simply The Printer, elaborates his ambitions through a tripartite structure that replicates identically the three-part vocational structure of the trade. The poem's three sections, that is, were called, respectively, The Apprentice, The Journeyman, and The Editor. The first section, for example, describes the toilsome chore of learning to set type, but affirms the value of the skill. In his Mind Coffin's protagonist, here I quote, Paints pleasing pictures of opposing peace when the few years of servitude shall cease. Proclaims in whispers soft the happy fate that doth the, account, the accomplished editor await. Till years and diligence shall gild his name and grace his temples with the wreaths of fame. Nerea mention, in other words of, of sheep pea. In section two, a hero describes his inexorable progress towards literary fame and fortune as he completes his apprenticeship and becomes a journeyman. Here we go. The joyless years of servitude now past, he shines, a dashing journeyman at last, becomes a buck, drinks brandy with a grace, till Bacchus roses bloom upon his face. Scribbles, talks politics and spouts with ease. Nor heeds if disoffend or that may please. Is puffed, caressed, invited out to dine. Drinks toasts, sings songs and quaffs his cup of wine. Makes puns, writes verses and perhaps gets mellow. In short becomes a downright clever fellow. In his final section, The Editor, we expect to find the author in his easy chair, producing copy, and superintending the journeyman in his print shop. But here, Coffin pulls the rug out from under our feet. Although the tripartite structure of the poem has led readers to expect success, just as the tripartite uh, um, structure of the vocation did the same, our protagonist appears at the conclusion of the poem a journeyman still, hiding in his room from the bailiff, who we are assured will arrest him for failure to pay debts as soon as he possibly can. Do not pass go, this poem says. Do not become a man of letters. Go directly to jail. The structural disruption of Coffin's poem reflects a widespread labor crisis in the print trade that began in the 1790s and that peaked in the 1830s for technical, excuse me, for technological innovation in the first two decades of the 19th century made it increasingly less likely that any given journeyman would ever be able to afford a press of his own and become a master artisan. Presses instead, as Rosalind Remmer has shown, became the property of men of capital, often men who had not been trained as printers and who categorically could not talk the talk or walk the walk or work the press. The initial result was a glut of journeymen demanding ever higher wages. The final end was the displacement of journeymen by so-called halfway journeymen, apprentices who had not completed their indentures but who were willing to work for minimal salaries, uh, uh, rat workers, in other words, scabs. Increasingly, the work of printers was mechanized and the labor divided. In the South, for example... Often illiterate slaves were used as pressmen, employing their brawn but not their brains, while white apprentices were trained to set type only. In the North, by contrast, it became increasingly common as the century came to an end to find women compositors who did not do press work and who were not on an apprentice track. And my invocation of tracking here is deliberate, This is the second political part of the talk, since the crisis in the printing trade can be best explained by seeing it as identical in structure to our current academic crisis, one in which universities hire their own halfway journeymen, graduate students and adjuncts, rather than paying full wages to qualified and experienced PhDs. If a PhD in the humanities is an apprenticeship of sorts, as John Gillery has assured us as it is, or at least as it was, then it is one where it is no longer clear that mastering the art and mystery of the trade will lead to secure, gainful employment. Many of us are still halfway journeymen, and that concludes the second political portion of the talk. <laughs> um... Meanwhile, back in the 19th century, as developmental structure of the printing trade collapsed and the artisan German became increasingly proletarianized, the occupational and literary ambitions of printers equally became uh, uh, obsolete. It was harder to even imagine oneself as a serious author Robert Coffin, as his poem predicted, never did establish himself as a professionalized man of letters. Rather, he made a typographic highway flyer, a Gutenbergian scholar gypsy. And although he published several books of poetry, they were always printed against loans he had made. He eventually became a literary charity case, moving from city to city, peddling his story, begging quite literally for handouts. He even ironically became the subject of poems written to raise money for his medical expenses. He died unemployed and of tuberculosis in 1827. The week after he had printed his obituary, the Philadelphia Casket ran a piece on the life of, you guessed it, Benjamin Franklin. Dr. Benjamin Franklin, the essay began, from a German printer, became one of the greatest men of the civilized world, and his life, written by himself, is a beautiful illustration of what may be affected by industry and application. The irony under the circumstances is hard to miss. Does this mean, almost done, that following the 1820s and 30s, printers ceased to write? Well, no, it does not. We can name at least a couple of highly successful printer authors from the end of the century, including Joel Chandler Harris, Bayard Taylor, and William Dean Howells. What it does mean, however, is that the tenor of the poems changed because the occupation itself, and hence the occupational ideology, were changing beyond all recognition. Two subsequent anthologies of poems by printers, one published in 1868 by Charles Mansell, the son of Joel Mansell, the other in 1875 by Oscar Harpell, are full of poems of decline and lament. The most familiar character in these poems is the aged journeyman, a figure who in earlier times would have been considered an oxymoron, like an aged baby. Walt Whitman registered these changes had to mention Whitman since he's in the title of my talk. Whitman registered these changes in his poetry. Think of him as a bookend for a very long stack of books. From his grab bag in formal apprenticeship in the 1830s onward, he was a witness to a changing industrial order in which for every printer who established himself, dozens or possibly hundreds did not. Thus, in the first 1855 version of uh, Song of Myself, we find squeezed into one of his famous catalogues, and I'm quoting here, the jaw printer with grey head and gaunt jaws who works at his case. He turns his quid of tobacco, says Whitman, and his eyes blur over with the manuscript. In another poem, published the same year and later to be titled A Song for Occupations, he describes the new highly impersonal technology of the industrialising print shop, typified here by the cylinder press. I was chilled with cold types and cylinder and wet paper between us, says Whitman. I pass so poorly with paper and types. I must pass with the contact of body and souls, typical Whitman. But printers by the 1850s were finding it harder and harder to actually keep body and soul together. With the emergence of new technologies and divisions of labor, the old culture of the printing shop rapidly faded, and with it went the printer's genres, indeed, the printer's aspirations to be men of letters. The last words I leave, however, not to Whitman, but to the hapless Robert Stevenson Coffin, the Boston Bard, who passed this malediction on the new and heartless race of print shop buses, using terms that only an old-school printer would ever understand. And it goes like this. May all your columns fall in pie, each chase be gnawed by rust. Weak, weak as water, be your lie, your cases filled with dust. May all your sticks untrue be made, your stands too high or low. No page upon the stone be laid where it should rightly go. May all your rules be short and rough, your bodkin but a nail. Your balls be like a barber's puff, and rats ass- uh, your pelts assail. May crooked stand of type each kind, your press hard run for oil. Your galleys ten degrees inclined, your paste be vermin spoil. May all your devils idols, idle be, yet look to you for bread and may you ne'er from debt be free until you're dead, dead, dead. (laughs) Thank you very much.